I remember those days. Wasn't all that long ago in my house. And as I look around, I see there's a lot of you there right now. A lot of children in this congregation. What a wonderful blessing that is. And so as I was thinking about lessons to share this week, I thought maybe some things parenting-related might be in order. And so, Lord willing, tonight and tomorrow night, we're going to have some things to say about the home as we think about getting back to basics at home. Isn't it funny how before any of us had kids, we all smugly knew everything there was to know about kids? Well, when I have children... I'm not going to let them. Well, I know how I'm going to handle that when I have kids. And then, of course, we all had kids, and we figured out that we didn't know anything. But there are some things that we believe about children because we've been told them or because we have heard others in our culture and our society say them. Uh, maybe we have heard even Christians say these things to us, but there are things that we believe about children that really are just myths. Some things that we believe about parenting, things we believe about children that are just wrong. And some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight are, are those that, that maybe we have allowed to, uh, to creep in from the culture and we have let the world's opinion and the world's thoughts about children influence our thinking. But some of what we're going to say tonight, we as Christians can believe these myths because of things that we've experienced ourselves or we've seen even in other Christians. So tonight I want to talk about three parenting myths. Things that we need to get out of our minds, we need to deal with these and address them because these things are wrong. Now, I want to say something to the children for just a moment. I want you to know that you're going to hear me say some things tonight that if you're listening carefully, you might say, hey, wait a minute, I don't like that. I can't believe he just said that. Understand, a myth is something that people believe that's wrong, or at least that's what I'm saying about myths tonight. That's what I mean when I'm talking about myths tonight. So there are some things you're going to hear me say that I don't actually believe. And I want to make sure none of us believe it too, okay? All right, so I had to throw that disclaimer out there for the kids because of this first one. The first myth that a lot of people believe is that children are a burden. Children are a burden. And see, the kids, if I didn't give that disclaimer, the kids would say, hey, wait a minute, who is this guy? He needs to sit down and be quiet. Understand, kids, these are some things that people say but they are wrong. Children are a burden. Our culture has an anti-children bias. And there's a lot of things that we could point to to illustrate that. Uh, how about we start off with the fact that our nation in the last 50 years has slaughtered 70 million of them. Could we start there? And we have done that because we believe this. 
You see, we, we've come to see that children are an inconvenience. And we don't want that inconvenience. And so let's just have an abortion so we don't have to deal with that burden. But even moving beyond that, we, we see the things that people say, we see the things that people are doing. When you think about the number of children that people are having today, you, you realize that people are having fewer and fewer children. A long time ago, it was common for people to have six, eight, ten, twelve children. Some of you with gray hair, you came from families where maybe you had eight or nine or ten siblings, or if it wasn't you, you could just go back one generation. And you could point to family members in your family where they had large numbers of children. Today, people are having fewer and fewer children. The ideal number of children, according to people today, is about one and a half. One and a half. My father had six siblings. I believe his father had about a dozen. And you say, well, yeah, but preacher, listen, the times are changing, right? I mean, people had so many children so many years ago because dad was a farmer and he needed help on the farm. And so he had lots of sons who could help. I get that. I understand that. We, we live in a different time. But when you hear people talk about children today, they will say things like this, one that's pink and one that's blue, one for me and one for you. We want two kids, and that's it. Or they'll say, a boy for me and a girl for you. Now, thank the Lord, we're finally through. People will say things like that because this myth exists. It's just too much of a burden to have children in the modern world. They're so expensive. Nobody's disputing that. In 2015, the United States Department of Agriculture did a study to determine what the cost of raising a child is from birth to age 17, okay? That was 2015. Why the USDA is doing that study, I don't really know. But it's government. It doesn't have to make sense, right? The USDA is doing it. And that was in 2015. Now, I'm not going to tell you the number because in 2022, just seven years later, they took that same study and they took that dollar figure that they came up with. They adjusted it for inflation. I will tell you that number. Birth to 17. If this was a Bible class, I'd say, come on, give me your guesses. $310,000 per kid. I have four. That's $1.2 million. How in the world are we ever going to? Kids are expensive. I get it. It's true. You have challenges that you have to deal with when you have children. If you have a, a, a 
a home where both father and mother are working, you've got to send the kids to daycare. Have you priced out daycare? Do you know what that costs? Or how are you going to educate them? Are you going to send them to private school? Have you looked into what that costs? You start adding up the costs of raising a child, and people say it's just not worth it. But there are other things that have contributed to this dramatic change, where people would have lots of children, families of eight and ten or more, to families with one child or at most two. The Pew Research Center cited these things. Quote, the wide availability of the birth control pill in the 1960s, growth of women's participation in the workforce, which surged in the 1970s, and the increasing cost of raising children. Here's something else that has led to the decline of large families the push for higher academic achievement and higher education levels. We push higher and higher academic achievement levels because if people pursue higher education, that will translate to a better career choice. Pursuit of career advancement equals less pursuit of all things domestic. People in our culture have come to see children as a drag on their finances, a drag on their lifestyle, and a drag on their future pursuits. Did you know if you have a child, you delay your retirement by six years for every child that you have? You hear people say things like that. Or they say, yeah, little babies, they, they wake up, they cry, they eat, they fuss. You have to change their diapers. You do this every single night. You'll never sleep. You and your spouse, you'll never get to go on a date ever again. Oh, man, it's just so hard raising kids. Beloved, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people in our culture who have an anti-children bias simply because they're selfish. They don't want to sacrifice anything for the good of that child. I don't want to give up my career. I don't want to give up my income. I don't want to give up my fun and my toys that I can go and have fun with on the weekend. I don't want to give up my travel and the lifestyle. I don't want to give up my Instagram. I don't want to give up this. I don't want to give up that. I'm not going to have children because of all of these things that ultimately come back to selfishness. So go with me to Psalm 127. Let's see what God says about this myth. Psalm 127. We're going to look at 127 and 128 because these two psalms need to be read together. Psalm 127 and verse 3. Solomon says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are a gift. Solomon says, not a burden. Children are a blessing from God. In verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. In Psalm 128, the writer says, Verse 1, 
How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. When you look at this entire psalm, you you see this lifelong picture of a man who fears God, who walks in his ways, but this man is blessed through and by his family. This man is going to have a long, fulfilled life as he walks before God in fear. God will prosper him and bless the work of his hands. But I want you to notice that the blessings that are pronounced upon this man revolve around his family. In verse 6, may you see your children's children. May you live long enough to see and enjoy your grandkids. You know, when you go up to a grandfather or a grandmother and you say, do you have any grandchildren? You notice that none of them ever say, yeah. Yeah, I've got four. Can't stand them, though. They're terrible. They're rotten. I don't like any of them. (laughs) No. Hey, do you have any grandkids? Yes! Let me tell you about my grandchildren. They're the greatest. Here's little Johnny. And then, you know, it used to be in the old days that, you know, the grandpa would pull out his wallet and he would just drop it and all those pictures would fall out. Now, it's, well, let me get up my iPhone and, you know, we swipe through and we've got 12,000 pictures of the grandkids. May you see your children's children. Live a long life. Enjoy those grandkids. But listen, you can't have them if you don't have kids. You can't have children's children if you don't have children first. And in verse three, interesting language. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Listen, guys, husbands, that's the line right there. Hey, sweetheart, you're like a fruitful vine in our house. Say that to her. The children, kids, Olive plants. You guys are great. What? What is this about? Well, you, you got to put yourself back in this setting. Agrarian society. And so these symbols of fruitful vine, blessing, prosperity, abundance, and these children who are, who are olive plants. What, what do you do with olive plants? You get olive oil and you use that for cooking, for burning oil in your lamps. There's all kinds of things you can do with it. And, and he says your children will be like olive plants. They'll be useful. They'll be productive. And you will be blessed by having a family, God says. So your children will be useful and they'll be productive. You know what that says? It says, give your kids chores to do. All the kids tune out. No. 
No, I really hope dad was sleeping during that point. The preacher didn't mean that. No, that's exactly what I mean. Vines, olives are sources of abundance and blessing. And the psalmist says your family can be that. You see, children are not a burden. They are a blessing. But I want to be very clear that, uh, that you understand this because I know a few moments ago I was talking about families with eight kids and 10 kids and 12 kids. Listen, I am not saying that if you're a married couple, you need to have 10 kids. And if you don't, you're a disappointment to God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you're in the wrong if you have four kids or three kids or two kids, one kid, or even no kids. It really doesn't matter the number of children. Here's what I am saying in this point. We as a society, and especially as the people of God, we need to stop calling a burden what God says is a blessing. So when you see a family that has a bunch of kids, please don't say things to them like, don't you guys have a television? You know where those come from, right? You know how you can stop that. Now, don't do that. Uh, don't look at that family with six kids as if they're just from outer space and they're aliens because those parents feel like they are abundantly blessed by the Lord. As my mother used to say, that's their little red wagon and we're just going to let them pull it. You're welcome to use that. It's good. It's a good saying, right? Everybody's life, you, you got your little red wagon, pull it. This is the wagon you've hitched yourself to, pull it. And this is their wagon. Children are enriching sources of joy, happiness, and fulfillment. Are there challenges? <laughs> yeah. Yes, there are. are. Are there times that are frustrating and aggravating and annoying? Absolutely. Is it expensive? Can I go back to the money thing for just a moment? Is it expensive? Yes, it is. But here's the deal. When we choose to have children, when we choose to try and have children, and if God blesses us with them, we don't care how much they cost. We have love to give, and we want to give it. It's not about money. It's about sharing with this new, precious life that which God has given to us to share. So here's a second myth that we need to think about. And I call this the recipe myth. The recipe myth. You know, raising a child is like baking a cake. Something which I know very little about. But raising a child is like baking a cake. This myth is, is sometimes referred to as the sculpture myth. So your child is, a, is just a large chunk of marble, and, and it's your job as a parent to take that hammer and chisel and start chipping away and shaping that, shaping that sculpture and making it exactly what you want it to be, baking a cake. Let's go with that illustration. 
when you bake a cake, you, you go get the, the things that you need. So you get the large mixing bowl and you get the whisk and you get all the ingredients and you get that recipe book and you open it up to the page and you start reading the recipe. And so you take all of those ingredients and you measure and you add and you put in and you mix and you stir and you do everything in the right way. You do it at the right time and voila, when you pull that cake out of the oven, you have this perfect, beautiful cake. And see, all you have to do when God gives you a child is follow the recipe. All you have to do is do everything right. And when you've done it, when your child comes out of the oven, that is when they leave home, you'll have a perfect cake a perfect child. This myth is one that's easy for Christians to believe. It's easy for us to believe this myth, and it seems that there are even passages that we use to support it, right? You still in Psalms? Go over to Proverbs. You know this passage. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You see that? That's the recipe passage. If you train your child in the way that he should go, when he's an adult, he won't turn away from it. He'll come out exactly like you wanted him to come out. It's the recipe passage. There's a lot of things we could say about that. But you see, the recipe myth is wrong for several reasons. First, this myth doesn't take into account the natural differences that exist in children. If you're a parent of two or more, you know exactly what I'm saying. Kids are not all the same. And any parent with two or more children can tell you ways that their kids are different. And there are certainly ways that they're the same. We would expect that from a child who comes from the same mom and dad and another child who comes from the same mom and dad. Well, of course, we would expect there to be some similarities, but there's also differences. And some of those differences are apparent from the moment they're born. You see this in Genesis chapter 25. You remember Jacob and Esau, twin brothers? Jacob and Esau are the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. 
But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And that is when God tells her that you have two children in your womb. And from those two children will come two nations of people. And so verse 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Immediately from the moment of birth, there are obvious differences between these children. Esau is described by his appearance. He's got red hair all over. Esau was born with a hair appointment. Jacob apparently looked different. Or else, what would be the the reason for pointing out the appearance of Esau? So there are obvious differences in their appearance, but you know that the story of Jacob and Esau goes even further than that. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You continue reading the story about these twins and you see they are very different. How is it that two seemingly opposite people can both be children of the same mother and father? They come from the same set of genes and yet they look different and they act different. What's the recipe for Esau? And what's the recipe for Jacob? Are they the same? No, I wouldn't think they are. Some children are introverted, some are extroverted. Some are natural leaders, others are content to be followers. Some are talkers, some are listeners. Some are athletes, some are artists and they come from the same mom and dad. How does that happen? And so with children, there is not this one-size-fits-all approach. There are some people in life who are Mac people, and there are others who are Windows people, right? Macs and PCs, and I'm not telling you which one I'm in favor of because I think I've already made some enemies this week. You know, the cats and then the deviled eggs and... I'm not telling you which one I am, all right? But here's the deal. You know that Macs and PCs are different. And yet, both operating systems perform essentially the same functions. They word process. They do email. They let you surf the web. They do the same functions. But when you buy an Apple computer, it comes preloaded with some software on it that does not work on a Windows computer. And if you buy a Windows computer, it comes preloaded with software that does not translate to an Apple computer, right? You understand that. Kids 
are the same way. And the recipe myth doesn't factor that in. Here's a second reason the recipe myth doesn't work. You will always be questioning whether or not you're following the recipe properly. You ever had moments as a parent where you weren't sure what you were supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, like all the time, all the time. What's the best way to handle this situation? Did we do the right thing or did we do the wrong thing? And if you are a recipe-following parent, you will second-guess every decision you ever make about your child. You will analyze every little detail. And you'll be going back to the recipe trying to figure out what did we do right, what did we do wrong, how did we mess up? Stacy and I see this in homeschooling. Every spring in Greenville, there is a homeschooling convention that takes place. And um, vendors will come out and you can buy their curriculum. Speakers will come out and give lectures and so forth. But you especially see this myth when you go into the expo where all the vendor booths are set up. Because in this huge expo center, there are hundreds of vendors who are selling their curriculum. And you look around at the parents who are shopping for their child's curriculum for the next school year, and you can see it on their faces. Well, which math curriculum is the right one for my child? There's only 2,079 options. I don't know which one is right. And if I buy this math curriculum and my child hates it, well, then I've just set them back 25 years. That's the recipe myth. Whatever choice I make, it might ruin my child. It might mess up their future for years to come, and I don't want to do that. And so these people analyze every decision so much that they stress and they worry themselves sick. You do not need to turn to it, but I want you to think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. There he said that we walk by faith, not by sight. You know what that means? It means that as parents and in life generally as Christians, we will not always know everything. There will be times when we don't know what to do. We don't know the answer. We're not sure which step is the right step to take. If we did, if we always knew the answer, if we always knew what we were supposed to do, then where does faith come in? Where does our trust in God come in? It doesn't because we already know everything. And that's walking by sight. We don't do that as Christians. We don't do it as parents either. 
the recipe myth fails, thirdly, because what if Proverbs 22.6 doesn't come true? Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. What if your adult child does not serve God? But I followed the recipe. I think. And you're going to look back and you're going to wonder, did I use baking powder or baking soda so many years ago? Where did we go wrong? What could we have done better? What should we have done differently? And you will load yourself with guilt because you didn't follow the recipe. Listen, beloved, that is not how this works. Our children become adults who make their own choices. You can't control their choices. Yes, when they are young, you can teach, you can train, you can guide. But as they get older, your direct influence over them diminishes more and more with each passing year. And as they become adults, you can encourage, you can urge them. But you cannot control them. The recipe myth needs to be busted. And we don't need to believe it. Now, as a follow-up to the recipe myth, here's this third and this final one. And this is one that as Christians, it is easy for us to believe. Well, no matter what we do, it's just impossible for us to raise our kids to serve the Lord. We just can't do it. You know, there's just so many negative influences on our children. As parents, we, we watch the news and we see the stories and, and we read about what's going on in the school system or what's going on in our community. Uh, we see the cultural celebrities and the people who are celebrated in our society. And we know that they're not good people. We know that they're not role models for our children, and yet that's the very people who get all the attention, who get all of the glamour. So help me, if Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift do not get off my Facebook feed, I'm going to go nuts. I don't care that they held hands when they went to the movie theater. Why is our world so infatuated? Why are we so dominated by people who have this status of celebrity and... I don't care about any of that. But that's the stuff that we see every day, isn't it? You know, news stations, when they tell us the news every night, it's almost never anything positive. Good news doesn't sell the way that bad news does. And it's easy for us as parents to be so overwhelmed with all of the negative, all of the evil, all of the bad, and then we will say, I just don't know how my kids are going to make it. The challenges that our kids face today are serious. And at times it can seem like they are impossible to deal with. 
Can we do it? Do we have it in us? There's a sense in which the answer to that question is no. We don't have it in us. If our kids grow up to serve God, it will not solely be because of our influence over them as parents. There is a number of factors that push them to faithfulness. The church that they are a part of growing up, good, strong churches like this one, encouraging kids, teaching kids, surrounding them with other like-minded kids and families. Churches have a lot to do with it. If our kids grow up to serve the Lord, it will in large measure be because they want to. Because they've made a personal choice that this is important to me and I'm going to serve God. And if our kids grow up to serve the Lord, it will be due in large measure to God's gracious working in their lives. But parents, we have a lot to do with it too. I'm going to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You want to talk about an evil culture? Let's not complain to Noah about an evil culture. Do you remember what Genesis 6 says? It says that God looked over the whole earth and he saw that the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of men were only evil all the time. But there was one family who served God. And God spoke to Noah, commissions him to build the ark. And Noah is going to spend over a hundred years building and preaching. In the end, Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. Eight souls got on the boat. Eight. Have you thought about the fact that Noah's sons were helping their father build the ship? 
It wasn't just him. Noah is preaching to the world, yes, telling them, warning them about the judgment that's coming, but Noah preached to his kids. And his kids got on the boat. How about 2 Timothy chapter 1? Second Timothy 1 and verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Timothy had a sincere or genuine faith. Where did that come from? Paul says, it first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Timothy's grandmother was a godly woman. Timothy's mother was a godly woman. And they raised Timothy to have a genuine faith. Faith that was impressive enough to the Apostle Paul that in Acts chapter 16, when Paul came to Timothy's hometown, he said, young man, you come travel with me. Oh, and by the way, you know what else Acts 16 says? Timothy's father, not a Christian. Timothy's mother raised him, even without the help of her husband. And she raised her son to have a genuine faith. There are many examples of poor parenting in Scripture, but there are examples of good parenting too. And we should look to those to find encouragement. Outside of scriptural examples of godly parents, all of us know men and women who have raised some incredible children. It is possible, beloved, to raise our kids to serve the Lord. It is. And we have to believe that. This is a fight that we cannot give up. And I know that we look out at the culture and we, we talk about all the bad and all the evil and all the things that are going on and we cry about it and we, we complain about it. Hopefully we're praying about it as much as we're complaining about it. But as we look at all the things that are going on in the world and we, we complain and we fuss about it, what are we going to do to stop it? I know what we're going to do. We're going to vote for this political party. We're going to get the right people in office. I'll tell you what, we're going we're to vote for the... We know better than that, beloved. It's not going to do it. What will do it? What's going to do it? Moms and dads all across this country taking their children, setting them in their laps with an open Bible and saying, let's read together. 
let's talk about God. Let's talk about Scripture. Learn this. Put it into your heart. Put it into your mind. Become what this book will make you. And if our children will see that in us, they will become that themselves. So don't believe the myths. Our children are a blessing. No, there's no recipe that if we just follow every step, everything will work out perfectly. But with God's help, our children can grow up to serve the Lord. Tomorrow night, let me give you just a short preview. Tomorrow night's lesson. What do we want for our children? We're going to talk tomorrow about what it is that we want for our kids. When you think about their life and their future, if you could draw it up just the way you wanted it to go, what would it look like? And are we certain that what we want is what God wants? That's what we're talking about tomorrow night. I hope you'll be back to join us. If you're here tonight and you need to respond to the gospel of Christ, we're here to help you do that. Maybe you need to be restored and come back to the Lord having left him perhaps even years ago. Can we help you with that tonight? If we can, we invite you. Please come as we stand and sing together.